0: Uh, If you have your Bibles, uh, you can turn to Acts chapter 2. I'm going to read the passage today. Uh, We've been looking for the past five weeks in the book of Acts at some pretty remarkable things that God did uh, through these first century believers. We're actually going to take a break from Acts to uh, work through a series in the Psalms uh, through Lent. And then hopefully we'll pick up in Acts uh, after uh, the Easter The Easter season, but it's it's been a great study uh, to see what God has done, to see what it means to be a church, and what it means to follow God in this endeavor called church uh, here in this city. Uh, But the passage we're going to read this morning is from Acts chapter 2, and I'm going to read from verses 1 through uh, 13. Uh, Luke writes this, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonged to Cyrene and visitors from Rome. Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we just read a story about how people were amazed at your mighty work. Father, fill our hearts with that sort of amazement. Fill our hearts with awe and affection for you, Lord. Because the truth is, if we're left to ourselves, we can't do it. We need your Spirit to come. We need your Spirit to come and inhabit our time here together, to come and inhabit our hearts, to open our eyes to see what is true. So, Father, we pray for your Spirit to come. As we reflect on your word in the next few minutes, trusting that he will open our eyes to the very thing you most desperately want us to see, and that is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray all this in his name, amen. Just to start this morning, I have a little bit of a confession, and that is that so often in my life, I feel very inadequate for tasks that God puts in my path. I don't know if you've ever felt this way before, but pretty much every time I've started a new job or some sort of new task that has any sort of level of difficulty to it, these feelings of kind of insecurity and inadequacy tend to come up, whether it's coaching, whether it's teaching, whether it's pastoring, whatever it is, I begin to start doubting whether I really have the stuff or I really have the ability to do this thing that's in front of me. And often pastoring makes me feel this way. Most certainly, parenting makes me feel this way almost on a daily basis, and it's so common in my life that I almost think when I don't feel inadequate, something actually might be wrong. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, if you don't feel yourself insufficient, it would have been a proof that you were not. Uh, this makes me think of something that happened to me in May 2009. In May of 2009, I decided that I wanted to run my very first marathon. I'd put in, I'd been running for a long time, my entire life, and I'd been uh, new, I'd trained other athletes, I'd coached athletes, but I'd never run a marathon before, so I decided I was going to do this, and started training five, six, seven months in advance to be able to run this marathon. I put in all the preparation and all the plans that, were, that I needed to do to be successful at running this marathon, and everything was going wonderfully. Through the first 18 miles, I was cruising, I was feeling wonderful, I was feeling great, and then mile 18 hit, and everything went south. I've told people that uh, that you find a very dark place in your soul in moments like that. And at mile 18, I was feeling a very dark place in my soul because my legs started to cramp. I, I had a hard time walking, let alone running. And to make matters worse, at that moment... Uh, it started to pour down rain. I mean, it wasn't just a drizzle. It was pouring down. The rain was coming down in buckets. I started to question God's promise to Noah that he would not flood the earth again. It was raining that hard. My, my wonderful wife uh, at that point, had, had uh, we had Will, who was three years old, and he was waiting at the finish line for me with a homemade t-shirt that said, Run, Daddy, run on it. Cameron was just, you know, a few months old. So I'd like to tell you that, that when I crossed the finish line, I did cross the finish line, but I'd like to tell you when I crossed that finish line, my arms were up in the air full of celebration and accomplishment and all that sort of stuff. And my family met me with hugs and, and jubilation and all that sort of stuff. But in reality, it was pouring down rain. I was bitter and I was angry and I was frustrated. Because I had come to recognize, in a very profound and painful way, I might add, my own inability and my own inadequacy to handle the task that was in front of me. You know, life does this to us from time to time. It throws us situations, situations that we feel incredibly inadequate or unable to handle. But what is so beautiful that you see in the scriptures, and often plays out in my life, is that in the moments where I am feeling most unable, the moments where I'm feeling the most inadequate, God shows up and does something miraculous. This book of Acts that we've been looking at records really the first few steps these followers of Jesus Christ had after Christ resurrected and ascended back into heaven. You see, Christ had chosen certain individuals to to pour his life into, certain individuals that he was to surround himself by, and they were regular, ordinary people just like you and I. They didn't have great royal or educational pedigrees. In fact, most of them were checkered with all sorts of mistakes and insecurities in their past. I mean, they were just a ragtag Bunch of people that were following Jesus. And when Jesus leaves, he gives them this most incredible mission. He gives them this mission and tells them that these people, you, you are going to be the foundation of this new movement. You're going to be the foundation of this thing called church that we practice here even today. And you've been given a mission and a message. And that mission is to spread the good news of the gospel, not just to the people you know. But the towns that are around us, to the people that are unlike you, to the very ends of the earth, they are given this mission. And no doubt, right after God kind of unfurls this mission for them, they must have thought, how are we going to do this? Their inadequacies, their insecurities must have been kind of bubbling up to the top of their hearts, wondering, how does Jesus expect us to accomplish this mission who are we to be able to do this? Or how is it possible? We're not capable of doing this thing that Jesus called us to do. But what, he, what also Jesus does is he tells them to wait. He tells them that power is going to come. You just simply need to wait because help is on its way. And of course, as we just read, ten days later, after Jesus had ascended into heaven, ten days later, his followers are sitting in an upper room and help arrives. It comes in the form of this great and powerful rushing wind that moves into their midst and, the Scriptures tell us, fills them with this thing called the Holy Spirit. And what you see is you see God showing up in their most inadequate moments to do something incredibly beautiful. Now, if you've lived life long enough, you know that life can be very mysterious. There are things that happen to us in life ...that we have no idea why they happened or for what reason they happened. Life is full of all sorts of mysteries. But the reality is God is full of all sorts of mysteries too. There's there's things that we know about him... ...things that he's revealed to us about his character and his personality in the scriptures. But there's much that is very mysterious about him too. In fact, one of the things that we believe is that God is three persons... ...in in one substance... ...wrapped up in this thing called the Trinity... This thing that is essentially mysterious that we can't even figure out. But this person, the Holy Spirit, is probably the most mysterious character in this three-in-one person called the Trinity. He's the one that we just seem to know the least about, but we know that he's just as important as God the Father and God the Son, though we don't know much about him. The only thing we really know about him is what Jesus tells us. In John chapter 14, 15, and 16, Jesus goes on this discourse where he talks about this helper or this counselor or this Holy Spirit that's about to come. And we know he's important because Jesus himself says, It is advantageous for me to leave your presence so that the Holy Spirit can come. And in the midst of it, Jesus tells us a few really powerful things about this mysterious character called the Holy Spirit. The first thing he tells us is that the Spirit, through the instrument of the gospel, is the agent that brings life out of death. But he also tells us that this mysterious character, the Holy Spirit, is also our helper, he's our counselor, and he is our advocate. And what Jesus helps us to see is that this character, this Holy Spirit, this mysterious character, has profound implications for us personally. It has profound implications for us as individuals, but it also has profound implications for us as a community of faith. As we gather together in this thing called church, trying to figure out our way in a city and in a world, this Holy Spirit has profound impact on the very thing that we are trying to do here ...as we have church. So that's what I'd like to do over the next few minutes. Look at what the Holy Spirit means to us personally... ...and then look at what the Holy Spirit means to us... ...as a community of faith. But first, what the Spirit means to us personally. The Scriptures tell us that after the disciples... ...had had experienced this rushing wind... ...and after they'd felt the, the presence of the Holy Spirit... ...come powerfully upon them... ...it says that they had this miraculous ability to speak the gospel in different foreign languages. Now, what ha- this event happened during um, a religious or harvest festival that's called the Feast of the Weeks. And during the Feast of the Weeks, they would, they would celebrate uh, the harvest, they would celebrate the grain and the food and the abundance that came from the harvest, but they would also celebrate something that happened in their religious history. They were celebrating and recognizing and remembering the time when God came down on Mount Sinai in their ancient history. And God came down in a form of the wind and fire and power and announced his presence in the people of Israel. And that's what they remembered. That's what they were reflecting on in this Feast of Weeks. But it was considered to be a pilgrim holiday. So what that meant was uh, Jews that were dispersed all throughout the ancient world would return to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. And of course we know about the Romans. The Romans were good at a lot of things, but one of the most powerful things that they did is they created an incredibly intricate road system. So that these Jews who wanted to return to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast could get on these roads and come into Jerusalem. So when this thing happened, there were people from all sorts of countries, all sorts of walks of life, all sorts of different nationalities and languages and tongues, and they had all gathered into Jerusalem, and they begin to hear this powerful message of the gospel spoken to them in their very native language, and they cannot believe it. They look at these people, these ordinary people, kind of checkered people. They look at these people. They realize they're Galileans. They realize they're uneducated, yet they're speaking in these foreign languages, and the people are absolutely amazed at what they are seeing and they're hearing, so much so that they wonder if the disciples are drunk. Some people mocked them, wondering if they drank too much wine, but others were amazed at what they were seeing. And if you read farther in the story, Peter gets up and he shares the gospel in a very powerful way. And the scriptures tell us in that moment, 3,000 people were converted to Jesus Christ, leaving the entire city standing in this this sense of awe at what they'd seen and at what had happened. You know, what happens here is a lot of different Old Testament images that Luke is playing on. There's so much that we can't even talk about it all. But what Luke also wants to see, Luke, the writer of Acts, is that that God is doing something in this event. If you go all the way back in the Old Testament, you'll read this bizarre story that's found in Genesis chapter 11. In Genesis chapter 11, it's one of the first stories of of human history. And it's a story about when uh, all of humanity got together to build a tower. They get together and they decide they want to build a tower, and they want to build a tower that reaches up into heaven. And the scriptures tell us in Genesis 11 that God is actually uh, dissatisfied. He's angry at what these tower builders were getting ready to do. Now, sometimes you read it and you scratch your head and you say, well, what's wrong with building a tower? But what God wants, him to see is, wants us to see is that not, they're not, he's not so much upset with their architectural endeavor, but he's, he's upset with the nature of their hearts. Because they wanted to build a tower to God because they wanted to be God. You know, what the scriptures constantly say is, the essence of sin is our attempt to be our own gods. And that's what you see in these, these, these tower builders in Genesis 11. So what God does is he comes down and he confuses their languages Before, they were all speaking in one language, but now God comes down and he confuses the languages. And what it says is the people then, because their languages were confused, were scattered all over the face of the earth. Now, why does that matter here? It matters here because what God is doing is he's reversing what happened in Genesis 11. In Genesis 11, all these different languages are born and they're spread out. And in, in Acts chapter 2, what we see God doing is we see God bringing these languages back together, united in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I said this has personal impact, and you're probably wondering, what sort of personal impact does this Old Testament message really matter to me and my life and, and what Luke is trying to say? But what, what he wants us to see is that what God is doing is he is gradually rolling back the effects of the curse that you and I deserve because of our sin. You know, one of the things that the scriptures tell us is that because of our sin, we stand before God uh, dead. We stand before God spiritually dead. We're physically alive, but our spirits, our spiritual nature inside of us is dead because of our sin. And we aren't just dead, the scriptures say we are are dead and we we stand condemned before God, awaiting his punishment that we rightly deserve because of our sin. What, what, What the scriptures tell us, though, is this character, this mysterious character called the Holy Spirit, what he does is he comes in the midst of our spiritual deadness and he brings life. He begins to roll back and work in reverse the curse of spiritual death that you and I feel, and He brings us life. When Beck and I first got married, we uh, we inherited a very old lawnmower. Okay, and uh, it was it was a hand me down. I don't even remember exactly where we got it, but it was a hand me down. And it, we we'd bought our first home, and we we came time for us to cut the lawn. So we bring out this old lawnmower, and I cleaned it up, and I did everything I felt like I needed to do, but it wouldn't start. So we checked the gas to make sure that, that there was, it was full of gas, and sure enough, it was full of gas. I think I even figured out how to change the oil on this sort of thing and, and put new oil in it, and we cleaned it up and checked the blades and did everything we possibly could, but no matter what, I could not get this lawnmower to start until I finally discover what the problem is. The problem was that the spark plug was bad. Now if you know anything about mechanics, which I don't know anything about mechanics, but if you know anything about mechanics you know that you can have all the ingredients ready and ready and and in the right place, but if you don't have that spark then that machine is not going to come to life. Well this is the very thing that the Spirit of God does in our lives. Because once we were dead in our sins but God's Spirit comes in and brings us life. He works through this good news, this message of the gospel to bring life in a place where there was no life before. But what the scriptures tell us is that this spirit doesn't just come and bring us life and then leave, but it tells us that he's our helper He's our counselor, and he's our advocate by continually taking this message of the gospel and applying it to our lives all throughout. You know, many people think that that this message of the gospel is really just the beginning of the faith. But this message of the gospel is the very nature of what true faith is from start to finish. It's the very thing that brings us to life by by God's Spirit, but it's also the very thing that God uses to mold us more and more into His image. And, and the Spirit as our helper, and our advocate, and our counselor, continually reminds us of this good news of the Gospel all throughout our spiritual journey because it is the thing that is the only thing that is life-giving. The Gospel is not just the thing that initially breathes life, but it is the vehicle that God uses to gradually roll back the effects of sin in our lives day in and day out, and it conforms us more and more into who God desires us to be. So this spirit has, incredibly, uh, it has an incredible impact on our lives personally. But it also has incredible impact on us as a community of faith. I had a great moment this week. I was, uh, I was, I was on, uh, on the computer and, and a bunch of my friends posted uh, links to an article that I, uh, that I had to read. And it said, it was, it was put out by Forbes, I don't know if anybody reads Forbes, but uh, it was put out by Forbes, and it was the nine toughest leadership roles in our culture, in our world today. And uh, so it listed uh, from nine to one, so from, from least to greatest, the nine toughest leadership roles that exist in our world nowadays. And so I click on it, and I start reading through it, and what I discover is that they list pastor ...as the number five toughest, toughest leadership role in our world. And I was amazed because we beat out mayors, we beat out congresspeople, we beat out corporate CEOs. And in that moment I was feeling incredibly self-righteous and validated... Because one of the authors that, one of the guys interviewed a pastor, and the pastor said this. He said, being a minister is like death by a thousand paper cuts. And I said, yeah, that's exactly what it feels like. So I'm feeling very self-righteous and very validated in my role. So I immediately call my wife. I said, you got to come check this out. So I bring her down and I start reading her the article. Now mind you, I had not finished reading the article yet. So I read her the article and I say, hey, look at this, sweetheart. I beat out mayors. I beat out CEOs. And look at what it says. And she says, well, what, what, is the, what are the other roles? So we, we scroll down all the way down to number one, which is a stay-at-home parent, to which my wife just smiles and then leaves the room. <laughs> I will tell you that nothing in my life has made me feel more inadequate as a person, at times, as being a pastor and trying to figure out what it means to lead a church in this mission that God has called us to do. It's something that I feel completely inadequate to do, and it's something that all of us ought to as well feel inadequate to do. You know, we gather for Sunday every, you know, we do this every week. We gather for worship on a Sunday morning. We try to go out and invite other people and get them to come with us to church in a culture that's becoming less and less, where the church is becoming less and less relevant. And so many people view this thing called church as just some sort of club that we're a part of or some sort of organization. Some people view the church as some sort of interest group or, or some way that they can kind of gather together to recharge their spiritual batteries or focus on the spiritual side of life. Others look at what we do here on Sunday mornings with all sorts of scorn and derision. But ultimately, what we do here on Sunday mornings is we express that we are to be a community that is centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is sent out in mission to our city and to our world. But the beauty of what the Spirit tells us is that we are not alone in this endeavor. That as we as a church seek to spread this message, this good news of the gospel into our city, into our world, and the networks of friendships and places that we go to every day, we go on this mission not alone. We've been given God's Spirit who chooses to work through the vehicle of the gospel to change the world. You know, just like our personal lives. Our personal lives without the Spirit, we are spiritually dead. And the church without God's Spirit working through the gospel is just a dead organization as well. Because the reality is we are left to ourselves. We are inadequate to do the very thing that God has called us to. Just like those first disciples had to feel, we are inadequate to do what we as a church are called to do. But God sends his Spirit to do great things in the midst of Of our inadequacies. The church, this thing that we do, is to be the instrument in which God brings life to a world that is decaying. And He invites us by His Spirit to be a part of this great work of redemption. So, what we've seen is God's Spirit has profound implications for us in our own personal lives and our own spiritual lives. And He has profound implications for us as a community of faith in a church both instances realizing that we are not left alone in this life. I think I've told you this story before, but I had a student one time approach me and she came to me in tears about uh, some difficulty that she was facing in her life. And uh, her situation was very difficult and hard, but the greatest burden that she she bore and the thing that caused her the most pain in her life was the fact that she felt like she had to tackle these situations alone. You know, I think we can handle a lot of stuff as people as long as we know that we have somebody walking alongside of us. But sometimes the greatest pain in life comes when we are alone. I was reminded of this a couple of years ago. Many of you know that uh, for 10 years I've been coaching um, high school cross-country. And uh, it's just been something I've done kind of on the side, but it's been but it's been a, a, you know, a great experience for me by and large. And I can remember uh, a couple of years ago, this is probably six, seven years ago um, at this point now, we had two really good runners on the team. We had a, a, a senior who was a great runner, and we had a junior who was a great runner as well. And, and what would so often happen is they, the two of them would, would be at the front of every race that they, that they ran. And uh, what happened is they would end up being each other's greatest competition on the front end of every race. But for whatever reason, the senior always managed to beat out that junior and remind him of his place, right? Uh, But one day, I can remember, this was, it was halfway through the season. uh, The junior came up to me, and this was on a Monday at practice, and he said, "Uh, coach, I don't think I'm going to make it to practice tomorrow. I said, all right, what's going on? He's like, well, we found out this weekend that my mother died suddenly. And he said, Coach, I'm going to miss practice tomorrow because I, I, I just need a personal day to get my head together. But we had, a, he, say, he says, but I'm going to be at our race on Wednesday. And sure enough, he wasn't at practice on Tuesday. And Wednesday came along and we were getting ready to race. And by now the team had heard about this tragedy the junior on our team had suffered. And they were really concerned about him, but he wanted to race. He didn't want to talk about it, he just wanted to do what he wanted to do. So the gun goes off on the race, and our junior and senior move out on the front like they always do, and they were running against one another. But you could just tell in the eyes of the junior that everything was not okay, that he was struggling emotionally to be able to put it together, to be able to run a race knowing that his mother had just passed away. Well, the senior, picking up on this, realized that winning this race was not the most important objective for that day. So what he chose to do is he chose to run beside the junior the entire race, just calling words of encouragement to him while they ran throughout the entire race. So the race goes on three miles, and they come up to the finish line, the two of them in the lead, just like they always do. And as soon as they come up to the line, the senior step backs, puts his hand on the back of the junior and pushes him forward and lets him win the race. It was the single most beautiful thing I've ever seen in 10 years of coaching. The junior that day did not need to win the race. What he needed was a helper. What he needed was a friend. And what he needed was a counselor. And what we have in God's Spirit is that helper. We have that counselor. Someone who will never never leave our side, but who is with us, whispering the good news of the gospel into our hearts, day in and day out, the very message of life that we so desperately need. Jesus, when he was talking about the Spirit, says this, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. I don't know where you are in in terms of your relationship with Jesus Christ, but if you've never experienced the Spirit of God breathing life into your soul, then embrace him by faith today knowing the only way you will ever experience true life is in a relationship with Jesus Christ, your Savior. But know that that Spirit doesn't just come and bring you life in a a once and for all circumstance and then leave you, but know that He is with you, that He is your helper, He is your counselor, He is your friend, and He will never leave you or forsake you, but He whispers the good news of the gospel into your life day in and day out and molds you more and more into His image.